0: 1 Peter chapter 1, 22 through 25. Let me read it, and then we'll walk through. Peter writes, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, in all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Look at this word here. He says, in this word is the good news that was preached to you. As we have journeyed through, as we've journeyed through the last several weeks looking at Peter's turn, really, in verse 13, when he began to kind of lay out what they needed to do on the basis of who they were, 1 through 12, He's been in the vertical. He's been describing uh, commands, ideas that are centered on the Christian's vertical relationship with God. And so when he spent those first 12 verses talking about the movement of the Trinity and bringing, making you a believer in faith in Jesus Christ, he gets into verse 13 and he says, okay, now you know who you are. So verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the first thing he told them is all of our hope needs to be centered on Christ's return. And so don't get dismayed when you see things go on around you. No, no, keep your focus on the vertical. This is the first thing he called them to. Moving from that, the second thing, he brought them into this passage in 1, 14 through 16, and he said uh, the thing that just kind of blew us away and is still devastating me in my heart, be holy said in verse 15, the one who has called you is holy, so you too be holy in all your conduct. So God just really gets at the heart of kind of who we are in that. This, this, our idea, like we like lists, we like to do this, don't do that. But in this, he says, no, spend time with God and he will rid you of these desires that aren't honoring to him. He is making you holy. He calls us to be holy. Set your hope on God and be holy. Then last week, as we looked at it, we got into verses uh, 17 through 21. And it began to affect our conduct, but still our conduct as it relates to this vertical relationship with God. Look down at verse 17. It says, you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, therefore conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Friends, this is not our home. This is not our home. We are homesick for a country that we've not been to. Our citizenship lies in heaven, and that's where we're headed. That is our home. We are passing through. We are sojourners. We are pilgrims here. As He writes and he says, this is the time of your exile. This is the time of your exile. And this vertical relationship with God, recognizing God for who he is, holy, affects how we relate to him. If you understand God as holy... Then our our reaction to him is very much like we said in Isaiah 6. Isaiah says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Our our reaction is very much like it is of John in Revelation 1:17, where he falls as if dead because he saw Jesus. When we understand God for who he is, it changes how we respond. And so moving from the, the vertical, he begins to impact at the horizontal. And this is where it really gets messy. This is where it gets messy. Because we've moved outside of this one-on-one relationship with God, and now we've got to do it together. We've got to do it together. This is why when you sit down, and you have your quiet time, and you're reading, and you're like, God's moving in your heart. You're like, yes, 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 I see myself here. Amen, claim this promise, claim that promise. Ooh, ooh, that's painful. don't tell anybody about that one. And you're kind of moving through these things. You're doing well, and then you get in a big group setting, and you're like, where did my quiet time go? You guys are awful. You're ruining the vibe, the feeling I had with God earlier. When we move beyond the vertical to the horizontal, when we incorporate other people into our lives, it gets messy. It gets messy. I've spoken to some of your wives. I know this to be true. I've spoken to some of your husbands. I know this to be true. I've spoken to your parents. I know this to be true. I've spoken to your children, and you wish I hadn't. (laughs) And so he gets into this, and, and look what he says. He says, having purified your souls... By your obedience to the truth, the first thing we've got to make sure, we are not a people who who check off and run through the list of do this, don't do that. The reason that our horizontal behavior is ever able to be affected is because of the vertical relationship with Jesus Christ. The first thing here he presupposes is that you have been saved outside of a a radical transformation with Jesus Christ, there is no hope for you. You may be a peaceable person, but you can never be at true peace with those around you. This is what he gets into. Look what he says. Having purified your souls. This is what the gospel does. You go in, and somebody presents the gospel to you. You discover the gospel through reading uh, the pages of the New Testament, the Old and the New Testament together, and you are conflicted. Because you recognize yourself that you are a sinner set apart from God. There is sin reigning in your heart. Be it pride, be it a sense of self-importance, be it the sense of just, I look, I don't, I don't need this. I'm basically a good person. People like me. You've applied the Stuart Smalley version. Dad, and I'm a good person and people like me. Idea to who you are. So whatever way that you found yourself coming to know Jesus in the midst of this, Ultimately, your obedience doesn't stem from your ability to make it happen. Your obedience stems from the fact that Jesus has radically transformed and changed your heart. You've got to know that. I've met some people that really just struggle to do the right thing. And the reason they're struggling to do the right thing and it feels painful for them is because their hearts have never come to the place where they say, look, I am a sinner totally in need of God's redeeming work in my life. Look at what happens here. He says, the purification of our souls stems from our obedience to the truth. Paul, Paul gives us an indication of what Peter's talking about here. In Ephesians 1.13, he says, in him, speaking of Jesus, he says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, and then he explains what that is. He says, it's the gospel of your salvation. When you heard the gospel, when you heard that you were created by God, that you personally rebelled against God, that God sent his son to live a perfect life, to sin, a sinless life, to die in your place for your sins, and then raise him up on the third day. When you heard this, when you heard the gospel, you responded. Look what Paul goes on to say. He says, You believed in him, and in believing in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It is in our obedience, our response to the truth. Some of us, to be frank, have never responded to the truth. This might be something you notionally kick around and say, I've heard of this. I think there's some good things from Christianity I can import, bring into my life. But your response to the gospel has been held in abeyance. You've not yet responded to God the word for you is don't look for things that you can incorporate and make your life better by introducing, but the way that your life might be radically changed is submitting yourself to the obedience necessary to purify your soul, and that is an obedience to the gospel. Not sitting here Sunday after Sunday hearing the things I say and saying, oh, this is good. My wife will will sleep with me more if I do this. Oh, this is good. My my wife will, will gripe at me less if I do this. Oh, this is fantastic. I can make more money if I incorporate a Christian work ethic. Like if this is you, if these are the things you're doing, then you're missing the gospel. The gospel is not about life enhancement. It's about life transformation and that through the salvation of Jesus Christ. Do we understand this? our souls have been purified we've been radically changed and transformed our hearts have been made new this isn't about list keeping and rule following this is about a relationship with Jesus Christ that transforms everything we are and could ever be everything we are and could ever be is transformed by our interaction and submission to Jesus Christ Peter has an odd follow up to this it's got an odd follow up it requires us to be really diligent in our reading look what he says souls have been purified by obedience to the truth, look what he connects it to, for a sincere brotherly love. You recognize that? Like, if you ever gone through and said, look, I've been saved, for what purpose? To love on those around me. Reminds me of Tommy Boy. You remember when he walks up? He says, brothers don't shake hands, brothers got a hug. I hate hugging. Like some of you have tried to hug me and you saw me do this number. There's a stiff arm coming from you. It makes me feel, oh, I'm just going kind to of die inwardly when I get these hugs. Every time I say that, I get more hugs. I need to shut up. <laughs> Learn to think it, not to say it. This is my problem, not yours. But he's driving us and he says, look, you have been saved for a sincere brotherly love. And some of us look at it and we say, naturally, I'm just not a touchy-feely person. Like, I'm just not a person who likes to be all that embedded and involved in people's lives. Let me just crash that for you. Let me just destroy that for you. Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonica, wrote these words to them in chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for somebody to teach you about it. He wrote to a group of Christians and he said, You have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. The reasons Christians don't need to be taught initially to love one another is because the Holy Spirit is doing that in you. And so we recognize when we are not actively loving fellow Christians, we are warring against the movement of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. All of a sudden, you move from this sense of feeling, well, I'm not touchy-feely, to, man, maybe I'm rebelling against the movement of the Holy Spirit in my life. That's what's going on. This is where I've been all week. Welcome to the party. He's got this idea in here, and he says that this is why you've been saved, for sincere brotherly love. Sincere brotherly love looks a lot different than parking your car, walking in, and high-fiving people and saying, praise Jesus, amen, hallelujah, where's the service? I'm ready to praise Jesus. That may be how you manifest excitement. Sincere brotherly love calls for radical engagement in those people around you. And it calls for you to be vulnerable. It calls for you to open up to those around you and say, these are the things I'm struggling with, what things are you struggling with, that we might come together and pray together, that we might grow by our mutual encouragement in the word. Sincere brotherly love. And look what he does here. He says, it's on the basis of the fact that you have been saved for sincere brotherly love that he really hits us with this horizontal command. He says, since you've been saved for brotherly love, love one another earnestly, earnestly from a pure heart. So it's effectively, Peter comes in and he imagines any church, any scenario, and he says, this is who you are. Recognize that if you have surrendered to the gospel, been obedient to the gospel, God has radically saved you, and he saved you so that your church, your group, your gathering, Christians worldwide and in any community might be recognized by their love for one another. So instantly the wheels in our mind are spinning round and round and we're wondering, like how many churches have I been in where where I saw love for one another? We can be friendly, and I hear that every week. Man, you guys are the friendliest people. But the question becomes, not are we friendly, but do we love one another? This isn't a suggestion for how to grow a church. This isn't a suggestion for how to have a more vibrant and beautiful and spirit-felt worship service or how your small group might be better. This is a command in Holy Scripture, not an option for us. And so he comes to us and he says, on the basis that this is what you are saved for, love one another earnestly. Earnestly. Interestingly, this Word here rendered earnestly shows up three times in the New Testament. It shows up once when Peter's in prison and they gathered around and they prayed earnestly for his release. And he came in and the inner door and the intermediate door and the outer door and the city gates were all open and he escaped. It occurs here in our passage and it also occurs when Jesus is praying in the garden. Luke 22 and verse 44, it says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is the degree. This is the degree to which we are to love one another. It's work. It's hard work. It's radical engagement, and this cannot be accomplished by gathering with folks for an hour and a half a week. It can't. Imagine how pathetic your marriage would be if you spent an hour and a half together with your spouse every week. Some of you, this would be an increase, but but that's a whole other issue, Imagine how anemic your relationship with anybody would be if it was so minimalistic in its its duracy and the amount of time you spent with them that it was basically just to exchange necessary details. Hey, how have you been? How's it going? Okay, see ya, see ya. Earnest. Earnest love is difficult. Because earnest love requires something of you and it requires something of those people that you're seeking to engage with. This earnest love stemming from a pure heart cannot seek to be engaged with those around you so that you might be a better person, so that those people around you might see you and say, man, Timer's a pretty swell guy. Carol B's an awesome lady. Have you seen the way they love the people around them? And then you're welling up pride in your heart. If this is the reason that you manifest love with those around you, then you have an issue that you need to deal with before God. But what we are commanded here to do is to love one another earnestly. This calls for spending time together. You have to be in church. You have to be in one another's homes to spend time together. Christian fellowship's not this thing that Baptists co-opted into making our belts get larger and our pants expand. You understand that? Christian fellowship is about more than, hey, let's have potluck dinner and really play with what food poisoning would look like. No, Christian fellowship exists because we have brotherly love for one another. 1 Thessalonians says we don't need to be taught because the Holy Spirit's already implanted in our hearts. You have to love one another. And you can't do this if you hate the person you're sitting on the pew with. You just can't. You can't love somebody you're sitting on the pew with, going to church with, And want bad things for them. Want to see them punished for sin in their life. You can't even go up to a husband who's cheating on his wife and say, you're cheating on your wife, you need to stop it. If your root inside you is just to see it exposed so people know what a low down dirty wretch he is. All of these things have to stem from a place of love. Some of us, some of us cannot call out a brother and sister in sin because we never first loved them. Only you can know that. You know, sometimes love does call on us to engage with people and say, man, I see radical sin in your life. I love you too much to let it go on. I've been involved in two or three situations like this in my life. I've had one of them go halfway well. It's hard. You walk up to somebody you love, somebody you respect, somebody, and you see something in their life, this cancer eating away at them, and you go to them and you say, brother, sister, friend, you can't, you can't have this in your life. Like, I see this in your life, I read scripture, I don't, how, are, how are these things compatible, how do these things work out together? You're you're broken, you're you're tearing up, you're having a hard time making it through the conversation, not because you want to see them brought low, but because you recognize there's a fracture between their relationship with Jesus Christ, and that is your primary concern at that moment. Not that they would follow your counsel, not that they would think you're a terrific friend, not that they would hate you, not that they would be brought low, but so that their relationship with Jesus Christ might be restored. It is devastating to love somebody to that point, to bring sin to them in their lives and have them say no. Something I can't describe is something I can't make you feel, but to put it all out there, to be incredibly vulnerable, to bring it to the person, to love them enough to say, I see these things in your life and I don't see how they're compatible with scripture and I love you and that's the only reason I'm bringing these things to you. And for them to respond Uh, either in hatred or indifference towards you, is devastating. But that's how we love people. We don't base our decisions and our engagements on those around us, supposing we know how the person will respond, or even knowing a surety of how they'll respond. This is why over and again, Jesus' instructions when asked, how many times do I forgive my brother? Seven, no, 70 times seven. This isn't so that you can be great with finger math, This is a call us to radically engage people, even those who oppose us. We need to love those around us enough. We need to quit loving ourselves so much and being so afraid of being uncomfortable that we would love people enough to have those hard conversations with them. Now lest I lead you to believe that all such love leads to confronting those around you with sin, sometimes loving people is just sitting with them when they're hurting. Sometimes loving people is just calling them when you know they need a friend, they need somebody to talk to. Most oftentimes, by the way that you love them is not the way that you desire to be loved. I don't like to be hugged. But I try and hug those that I know need that. I don't need a whole lot of conversation, I don't need a whole lot of attaboys, but I try and give those that I think that need that. And occasionally I've had men come up to me and say, you need to try and be more encouraging. I've noticed you're not the most encouraging person. And I said, shut up and sit down. Next. <laughs> That's right, it doesn't always go well. No, and I accepted that. And I said, man, from the place that you're giving that to me, I I, mean, I appreciate that. That was not an easy thing for you to bring to me. That's not an easy thing for me to hear and I can't guarantee that I'll be perfect in executing it, but I appreciate that. I need to hear those things. Guys, we've got to love each other. Christian love is is attractional because it is rooted in man. It's rooted in God and it's his spirit manifesting it in us. It's not something we create or engender on our own. Look what he does here. He wants us to understand the solid ground from which our command to love is rooted. And it's rooted, it's founded in scripture. Look what he says here. He says, since you have been born again, not of Perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Scripture is living, it is breathing, it is a vibrant thing. And its application to you in your life produces life. When you read through Scripture, when you come across John 3, when you come across all these things and you recognize First John, you recognize uh, in Romans, you recognize that life is being produced in you through the conviction by the Holy Spirit It's making you alive. It is causing you to be born again. Now what we've already seen so far within 1 Peter was back in verse 3. It said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look what it said. According to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that's the first place we saw about us being born again is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's effectively what he says again here. We've been born again, not by perishable seed, but imperishable. Perishable seed, a man and a woman come together, children are born. It doesn't take a biology major to understand how this works. Perishable seed, all of us will die. All of us will die at some point. But he says, this isn't how you've been born again. This isn't how you've been made alive. Get your head out of this Nicodemus idea that you need to once again uh, enter into your mother's womb. Instead, he says, it's not with perishable seed, but it's imperishable. We've been born again by the seed of Jesus, who came as a man, suffered and died, took upon our punishment unto himself so that we might be free of sin and death. Amen. We've been born again by his imperishable seed. And it became real for us. It was applied to us through holy scripture. He says the living and abiding word of God. Look what he does here next. He quotes out of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. He says, all flesh is like grass. In all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. He says, look around you. Look around you. Just as Isaiah wrote to those uh, as the nation of Israel was in captivity, and he wrote, and and, and they recognized the decadence of the Assyrians, they recognized the decadence of all those living around them, and he said, all of this is going to pass, all of this is going to fail. So too he wrote to the exiles in Peter's day, he said, See how they sacrifice to Artemis. See how they sacrifice to all these pantheon of gods all around you and live life in, in, in reckless debauchery. They take women who are not their wives. They take men who are not their husbands. They are living for the God that is inside them. Their God is their stomach. Their end is their pleasure. And there's this sense of being on the outside of the circle and seeing all this stuff described as joy or seen as joy, and you feel absent. It's like seeing an amazing party through a window that you weren't invited to. It's not that you forgot to RSVP, RSVP. You simply were not invited. And there's this temptation for those of us who are exiles to feel like we're on the outside of a party. Everything is so great in the world. They don't have a care. They don't have, a, they don't have guilt. They don't have this compunction that they need to do more, better, or right. So he writes to them and he says, all this stuff is ephemeral. All this stuff is transitory. All this stuff is fleeting. Everything you see at school, everything that you read in the books, everything you see on MTV, everything you would see anywhere and everywhere on Facebook, no matter where you see it, ultimately all these things are going to come to nothing if they're not rooted in Jesus. That's a hard reality to wrap our minds around. We're constantly inundated to be engaged with those things we see in the world. Buy this car, live in this neighborhood, send your kids to this school, dress this way, eat this food, work out at this gym, do this, wrap. Wrap up your whole body in cellophane. You're guaranteed to drop 50 pounds just real quick or die. I've never actually heard that as a weight loss plan, but like, that wasn't an endorsement. Don't try that. i see you at Walmart later buying cellophane. We're going to talk. One, because I'm at Walmart. Two, because you're buying cellophane. All right. Look what he says, though. All this stuff around you that you're tempted to look and say, we set our eternal hope and purpose on getting the right candidate elected, keeping the wrong candidate out, doing all these things to try and be this way. It's all going to pass away. It's all fleeting. Then he calls them down to the one thing that is lasting, that is permanent. He says, the word of the Lord remains forever. It's a sure promise. This is why we teach verse-by-verse exposition. I could do a series of 12 things that would greatly enhance your marriage, but I guarantee you, you and your wife are heading towards divorce. You're not going to be looking for number 10. What was that 10th thing that set could save our marriage? But if you know the Word of God, we've been applying it to your lives week in and week out, and you've been studying it, and we've been modeling what it looks like to engage His Word, it, and your engagement of it, can transform your marriage. Not my ability to be creative, not Justin's ability to be creative, but God's word, which is enduring. It is living, it is abiding, and friends, it remains forever. Look at this good news here. He says, in this word, this foreverlasting, abiding, and living word, this word is the good news that was preached to you. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10 through 12, he began to talk about how the prophets were prophesying about Jesus long before he came to be. And he's trying to help them understand the flow of salvation history, kind of how God moved long ago and he's still moving today and how his word is producing change in them. And then he got into verse 12 and he said, listen to this, those things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven, things into which angels long to look. If you have been changed by your submission to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you recognize that you're a sinner set apart from God, that you cried out to him and asked him to forgive you, you confessed your sins before him, that he led your heart to crave and desire repentance, to live a changed and renewed life in him, then if this is who you are, you have been saved for the manifestation of brotherly love. And we are to be a people who are busy about the business of the gospel, amen? And so what God would call us to do is to reflect that our lives have been changed by an engagement of the gospel and then being engaged in the gospel is calling us to love all those around us. Would you pray with me? Would you pray with me that God would make that a reality in our lives, that he would lead us to love one another radically, effectively, and appropriately? God, I thank you that you call us not to a list of five things that we could do and feel better, a list of seven things we could cut out and our lives would greatly improve, but you call us to the difficult work of loving those around us. Some of us are not easy to love. God, we've got problems, we've got issues. Some of us, the thought of loving those around us is difficult because we don't even like the people around us. God, I pray that you would change our hearts, that you would help us to be softened to your word, softened to your purposes, your plan, your direction, and that we would be a people wholly submitted to you and a people that might be described as not being friendly, but a people who who are generally made in love and made for love and loving those around us. God, that you would show us ways that we would be able to walk in that truth, And you would call us to be diligent in that exercise. God, would you give us strength even now as your spirit begins to move and start our hearts, unite our voices in song. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.